0: The W.M. Keck Foundation has awarded Michigan State University's Alad Harrell and Marcus Dantis $1.3 million to start a new revolution in the way we use optical microscopes to understand the living world. The grant is one of six awarded nationally by the Keck Foundation in 2022 for science and engineering. This also marks the first time that scientists at MSU have claimed the award. The Keck Foundation encourages creativity by rewarding transformative projects
1: that other funding agencies might see as too ambitious or risky. Hi, I'm Marcos Dantus. I'm a distinguished professor at Michigan State University and I work out of the Department of Chemistry and I'm also adjunct in the in the Department of Physics. Yeah, I work with lasers. My name is Laud Hurrell. I'm a
2: associate professor in the Department of Chemistry and also adjunct in physics, and um, my research spans uh, ultra-fast science, or working with really short pulses of light, um, and working on all kinds of new techniques in uh, in molecular imaging.
0: Cool. Now, if you could each sort of just tell me a little bit of your background and what attracted you to MSU.
1: Uh, Since I was uh, 10 years old, I decided that I wanted to be a scientist uh, slash inventor, and I thought that uh, if uh, one day I can have a lab and just invent stuff, that would be the best. And uh, after my PhD and postdoc, I got an amazing uh, offer from Michigan State University to build a big lab and, and have lasers and uh, start inventing things. And I've been super happy ever since.
2: I love it a lot. How about you? I've you know, also since I was little, I always really liked. I uh, was, you know, attracted to science and um, and math, and also uh, kind of on the artistic side, I was really into photography. And so I entered lots of like photography competitions, and I really wanted to do that. And then I kind of realized that, you know, um, how could I combine like both of these loves, you know, both science and art? And I realized I was a lot easier to be a scientist and do photography as a hobby than to be a photographer and do science as a hobby. So I thought, you know, I could do, I could kind of go down this trajectory and, um, that's kind of what I've been following ever since. And, you know, I had an opportunity to come to MSU and they said, you know, we're going to give you this new lab and the opportunity to do whatever you want and change direction, go into really new areas. And you don't get that opportunity too often as in your career. And so I I jumped on it and, um, yeah, I've been very happy ever since.
0: So you've both started to talk about it, but tell me overall what your research interests are.
1: I have been working with uh, ultra short pulses uh, since I started my PhD. And when I came to MSU, I started working on something called pulse shaping. So basically um, taking the very short pulse and, and making it you know, controlling it in ways that uh, it gives it special properties in the time and the frequency domains. And my first foray into that was to apply it to a number of things like uh, protein sequencing and biomedical imaging and standoff detection of explosives. Uh, Since then, I continue to do that, uh, but more along the lines of, uh, you know, of how uh, molecules behave on their very intense laser fields. And people would think that they just simply explode. But we're finding that, you know, within a very, very short time, uh, you know, the time it takes to break one chemical bond, these molecules actually form new bonds. And, you know, and people didn't think that, you know, with such amount of energy and during explosion, you have times to form new bonds. And so, that's been uh, relatively cool, and uh, you know we keep going in a number of directions.
0: Alad, how about you? Describe your research interests for us.
1: So
2: my interests kind of span a wide range. I, I started off um, in my PhD working in an area called magnetic resonance. So if if you're familiar with magnetic resonance imaging or MRIs that you would get in, a, say, a hospital. And so when I went to do my PhD... Um, I met somebody who uh, my advi- who ended up being my advisor in that area, who just really inspired me because he was kind of doing things that I didn't even know existed, and so it was uh, just a really inspirational kind of work. And uh, and he was an inspirational kind of guy, so he just I really gravitated towards um, that kind of research, and and so that's kind of what I did in my PhD was developing new methods in magnetic resonance imaging, and. Uh, as I was nearing the end of my PhD and trying to decide what I was going to do, I thought, well, maybe I'll just continue in this field. But I realized I didn't have any really great ideas of what I wanted to do with that. So I thought, why well, don't I jump into a new field and see if I can apply those ideas um, from the MRI kind of community and, um, and apply it to the, the optical regime. Um, where we can where we work with light. And I've always been fascinated by working with with light in one way or another, but I just didn't really have that opportunity. And so, in my postdoc and subsequent to my PhD, um, that's really what I've worked on is kind of merging these two very different areas because they all have their own they have their own language, they have their own communities, their own history, and so on, their own physics. And so, um, what I did in my independent career was really Think about applying those kinds of ideas um, and, you know, whether we could learn something new. And I got particularly interested in processes like photosynthesis where, um, you know, plants have this incredible ability to take light and convert it to uh, useful forms of energy, to chemical energy, store it as chemical energy. And how does that happen? And it turns out that happens on a, you know, there are many, many timescales that that happens on. And a lot of that's been understood for the last century or more. But the most fundamental kind of initial processes of that of photosynthesis are still not understood. And since they're not understood, we can't mimic them. We can't create artificial photosynthetic systems, which would be, you know, really, of course, important for, um, for energy storage and utilization and alternative forms of energy. So I, I really got fascinated by that problem. And... I thought, well, how does one measure these things that you can't see? You know, They work on timescales that are millions of a billions of a second. So you, you don't have a clock even that's fast enough to measure them. And that's where the, the idea of using uh, really short pulses of light was intriguing. You know, Can you use that as your clock? And uh, what kind of processes can you see that is make movies of molecular processes or how energy mo- moves through molecules or through proteins That was just captivating. And so that's kind of what we've been trying to do ever since was make these movies, you know, really actually see these things happen and catch them in time and space and in energy. And uh, turned out that's a hard thing to do. (laughs) And so you need to develop new tools to do that. The tools just don't exist. Um, and so that's that's what we've been uh, focused on. I think this is a, a really
0: remarkable achievement. Douglas Gage is MSU's vice president for research and innovation.
3: The Keck Foundation is a, a funder of scientific research, and, and they value one thing, I think, over anything else, and that's transformative innovation. They do not want to fund uh, research that can be funded by any other agency, even the DARPA or some of these sort of uh, agencies that go for the really out there sort of research. So one of the things we had to do was really persuade uh, Keck that this work was innovative, a little bit on the cutting edge, but not crazy enough that it would never work. And so that's a very fine balance between, you know, what is possible, uh, maybe challenging, but, but possible to achieve, but yet remains innovative enough that, Another agency might say, oh, yeah, well, we'll take a chance on this one. So it's a a very fine line. We submit Keck proposals every year. We've had some really out there sort of research projects, and we uh, usually uh, submit the grants with comments from uh, failed grant applications, maybe to the NIH or NSF, with comments like, this sounds like science fiction, but if it works, it would be fantastic. You know, something like that. So you really have to persuade the reviewers at Keck and it's a family foundation. Ultimately, they, they have experts that they bring in to really evaluate the, the, the science. But, uh, you know, they really want to make transformative change. And so it's a remarkable foundation. One of the things that it, it does for MSU is that it it really validates uh, the innovation that we have going on at the university. And we we know that, but it's great to have... Uh, a national uh, organization, really validate what we know about MSU. We're very grateful for this proposal, uh, that it was funded. Uh, we, we're very grateful this, for this award. I'm convinced that the work that Elad and Marcos will do will indeed be transformational. If they can do the, resu- the, the imaging of living systems at the, revolution, that at the resolution that they uh, propose, that will be remarkable, and it will be indeed transformational. You know, the, the innovation here comes from two very independently innovative science scientists bringing together uh, their ideas in really a novel way, and I, I think that's often the seed that that leads to uh, innovation. Uh, we try to promote that at MSU, and it's a uh, you know so we're we're looking forward to the the outcome of the, of this research, and I think I think. Uh, It's going to be something to watch.
0: Well, let's talk about the prestigious and cool Keck Award you two have received. Sort of how did you come together, and what are you going to work on in that project?
1: Basically, for the idea, a lot came to me, and he said, I have this uh, very interesting idea. I've been thinking over it uh, for some time, and... and, uh, you know maybe we can work together maybe we can find a foundation that will that will fund this kind of a uh, very you know, uh, high impact but high risk uh, project and then I'll pass it to a lab, uh, to to describe more uh, i mean we it was not the first shot
2: yeah and this this kind of comes back to what i was saying about the the power of looking at combining different fields you know coming at things from different perspectives because people have come up with all kinds of ingenious ideas in astronomy and biology and all kinds of different realms of physics and engineering. And uh, being aware of what people had done was really um, kind of, you know, brought up a lot of challenges uh, to me about how we could apply, you know, are there there optical analogs of these different types of methods? And so MRI always kind of came back to that idea of magnetic resonance imaging, where, um, we form these beautiful images inside the human body. It's, it's kind of a remarkable, absolutely remarkable technology. And, um, you know, the the invention of MRI has a very interesting history. It goes back, you know, it was, started off really in physics and looking at molecular beams and doing kind of this very specialized branch of physics. And then it moved into chemistry where it could be used for identifying molecules and looking at proteins. Uh, And then it kind of moved into medicine. Medicine said, well, wait a second, we could also utilize this in some way. And, you know, it kind of evolved in that way over a span of many decades um, to what we have today. But what always captivated me about magnetic resonance imaging was the fact that um, its resolution was really remarkable because it used radio waves. And radio waves, you know, they're great for transmitting sound, right? They're great for um, detecting if there's an airplane in the air via radar, but, you know, they're very long wavelengths. So they're, they're not really something you would think that would be good for high resolution imaging. And yet in magnetic resonance imaging, you routinely achieve resolution much smaller than that wavelength. So how does that happen? And so I started thinking about, was there a way to do that in optics? And uh, and so that was kind of brewing in the back of my mind for a long time, but it, it was something that would take such an enormous effort to even test. It didn't really make sense to apply to a traditional funding type of agency to do that. They, weren't, they just wouldn't be very interested without some results. And that's kind of where I came, I thought, you know, this kind of stuff Marcos does was so intriguing and could be so beneficial because um, in, in the magnetic resonance imaging community, um, a lot of you know the manipulation of electromagnetic fields, now radio fields, can be done kind of at the at the click of a button. All right? It's all electronics, and in optics, that's not really the case. You have to pass light around from one mirror to another. It's like very complicated. But the stuff that Marcos developed was uh, really was able to shape the light in ways that was very similar to the kind of shaping that had been done, you know, 50 years ago using electronics in, uh, in with, by, of, of these radio, uh, radio frequency electromagnetic waves. And so it made sense in terms of the timing where the technology had matured in order for us to take that and say, hey, can we do this now? Can we control these optical fields in ways that have not been achieved before, or maybe even attempted before? And so um, that's why I think this kind of partnership made so much sense even though we're both experts in lasers and ultrafast optics it really made sense to kind of capitalize on our various expertise uh uh, in order to um uh, for this keck foundation grant
0: i know you're both true scientists and you'll find what you find but are there things you're hoping to find or questions you hope to answer
1: Well, well i i think we should start with the with the stated goal right uh We all know about cells, and we know a lot about the organelles in the cells, and how cells divide, and so on. It's just fascinating. But most of what we know, well, well, let's let's divide. Let's say as follows: most of what we know about cells, either we can see on a regular light microscope, and in that case, we can see everything in motion, and then we can freeze and and, and do electron microscopy and then we can find, you know, what is the shape of the different organelles and then we can maybe crystallize the different proteins and then we can know know it at the atomic level. However, eh, a lot of this, eh, let's call it the biological machinery, eh, eh, is operating at length scales that are shorter than a wavelength. And so if we wanted to see how a protein is being made, well there's no way right now so we need to resort to methods that are either x-ray diffraction or electron uh, microscopy and and with that we take static images and maybe by putting many many millions of static images we can begin to to get an idea of how this might be happening uh, you know in real life right or in motion our our key goal here is can we see the machinery of of life in action with a resolution of nanometers, and that would be, you know, thousands of millions of a a meter, I mean, it's really, really tiny, tiny uh, length scales. I mean, in most of the cases, our microscope will not look at a space much larger than the width of a hair. Most of the time, we're going to be way, way below that. and. And so we we want uh, our our main goal is resolution in the nanometer scale and time resolution. Can we get video rate or maybe ten or a hundred times faster than video rate? If we get there, we both will be so excited. Uh, we'll be jumping up and down. And I think uh, a lot of our colleagues will be equally excited.
2: Yeah, you know, I think I think the challenge has been, as as Marcus described, right, is that we we tend to think that we can see these molecular machines, uh, you know, we can watch them in motion, right? And the truth is we can't. What we can see are, are these kind of static snapshots. So, and we infer, we're very good at inferring what happens from those static snapshots. Static snapshots. So it's like, if you saw a, uh, you know, if you see a picture, you can infer a lot of maybe what's going on in the picture. Um, but if you see a picture only, you know, every hour, you're really missing a lot of the details of what's happening in between. How are people communicating? What is happening? You know, what's the social structure? What's what's happening in that scene? And that's kind of where we are. We're very good at inferring, and we have people. You know, enormous ingenuity has gone into uh, figuring out the mechanisms of various biological processes. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a very very slow discovery process because every every kind of science one does is only revealing a very small narrow window into that process and by combining enough little snapshots of information we can kind of piece together maybe or we can have a form of hypothesis of what's happening Um, but that's really different than being able to observe it directly at the time scales that matter and that's kind of the challenge that we're trying to you know there are different technologies for for getting those kind of snapshots what, what the technology that does not exist now and what's specifically addressed in this Keck Foundation grant is uh, how do we make these movies at the requisite time and spatial resolution to see directly what's happening and to just accelerate that discovery process? Because we are, after all, very visual. You know, we're human beings are just visual. We understand things through um, you know, how we see it. And uh, and and so that's that's still a very large missing piece. So I think it's not just that we'll we'll be excited to see, you know, better resolution. I mean, there's always a goal of improving resolution and so on. But it's really to help uh, aid our understanding, our fundamental understanding of these complex processes, and so that we can advance science in general in ways just like light microscopy has advanced science a hundred years ago. The advent of you know, very, maybe even more than hundreds of years ago, the advent of, of microscopy, light microscopy, really accelerated the knowledge of the microscopic world. And so that's the same kind of goal here, just like astronomy is, you with know, the more powerful telescopes, is accelerating the discovery of the, of the planets and the evolution of the cosmos and so on. We would like to um, uh, you know apply that to the kind of nanoscopic world, the, the world in which molecules and proteins
1: and cells live.
0: As you move forward, both some challenges and some opportunities for the project.
1: Well, uh, the biggest challenge is uh, that we intend to use visible light. And visible light has a certain wavelength, which is about half a micron. And so there is uh, the so-called diffraction limit uh, that tells that you cannot uh, uh, resolve uh, elements that are... uh, Smaller than half of the wavelength, and so that's that's the number one challenge, as uh, as lad was uh, was saying. You know, we're going to be using ideas that are borrowed from magnetic resonance imaging, but uh, that's the the first challenge, right? You know, it's like, who do we think we are that we can break the diffraction limit? Now, uh, there was uh, uh, not too long ago a Nobel Prize for three amazing scientists that figured out approaches to break the diffraction limit by using you know a number of different uh, ap- uh, uh, approaches and methods uh, that d- that primarily depend on on fluorescence and and multiply exciting uh, molecules and uh, well we think we have a, a a new idea on how to do this and and if we are successful uh, we are predicting that uh, our method will be more um well, let's say less detrimental to molecules and will allow us to image with a, a, with a very high speed uh, you know entire entire movies so that we can see uh, this uh, biology of life again I'll, re- I'll repeat uh, in motion and uh, so that's that's the biggest challenge that, that I see uh,
2: Yeah, I think, you know, as Marcos said, you know, we we have to kind of start with the most basic premise of the entire proposal, which is just distinguishing two things, two objects that are really close by to one another, closer than what the kind of traditional limits impose. Um, And, you know, then the question is, how do you extrapolate from that to, um, say, two dimensions or three dimensions or more complicated imaging scenarios? So we really have to do some really basic research in terms of just showing what are the limits. And you know, the real life limits are dictated by things like the sensitivity of the measurement, right? You don't have infinite sensitivity. You always have limited in some way of how faint of a signal that you can isolate in the background of all kinds of other uh, interfering signals. So there's, there are questions about you know, how many photons can you collect and so on there are questions about what type of samples would be appropriate, right? Would, you know? Do we start off with uh, samples that we can manufacture and then we know all their spatial and temporal properties, and then we eventually want to move to samples that are you know, soft matter, right? biological samples. How much light can they handle before they start to break down? So what is the kind of contrast that we expect to see in these kinds of images, right? At the end of the day, it's all about contrast, distinguishing one thing from another, and so, is there going to be a strong contrast between one type of protein and another type, or one organelle and another type? So we have to we have to kind of pose those types of questions. And all of these these uh, all of these questions will involve, you know, both the kind of fundamental basic research that we're planning on doing, but also collaborations with other folks at MSU and elsewhere who can really provide us the right kinds of samples and who can help us formulate the questions in the right way. That is, what are the important questions? Why do we need this kind of resolution? Under what circumstances is it important? Under what circumstances is it not important? So we, we wanna capitalize, take advantage of the expertise that people have developed over gener- you know decades on various specific problems um, that they've been focused on and how our technique could be applied to that. So just like the introduction of any new technique, whether it was going back to the MRI example, You know, at first, the first MRI experiments were distinguishing two tubes of water. That's not terribly interesting. Um, But someone said, wait a second, the brain is just a bunch of, you know, compartments of water. (laughs) So, you know, can we we extrapolate to that? And what kind of contrast would we see in the brain or in the body? And under what circumstances do we need to enhance that contrast? Or what kind of uh, different pulse sequences can we use to see one feature and not another? So there was decades and decades of work to get to where we are today where that can be used as a diagnostic tool um, and as a routine tool that doctors who are not specialists in the technology of MRI can use to make medical decisions, right? And so that's gonna be the same thing here where we have to we have to prove that these techniques are gonna give information that's, that's useful and not distorted in some way, or at least that we know what the distortions are so that we can expect them and we can account for them. So there's there's a lot of work just to be done in the verification step, because we don't know what we're gonna see exactly. And, but, which is what makes it exciting, but also we have to appreciate that fact.
1: As we start the first experiments, which will be on, on very small particles that are inert and, and static, but as soon as we can demonstrate that this approach works in one dimension, we, will, we already know exactly how to take it to two dimensions, and it will already have a huge impact. We just, uh, you know, our brains are now focused on getting that first step uh, uh, done.
0: Well, Marcos and Alad, thank you for telling me about this great project. Just summarize what you'd like us to know about it as it gets started.
2: As scientists, we're always greatly appreciative of the fact that um, these external sources, you know, f- these philanthropic sources or funding sources or wherever they may be, really kind of appreciate the challenges that uh, we have to face as scientists, the kind of challenges and in the infrastructure that we need and the resource that we need to really test on new ideas. So it's very gratifying, and we're extremely appreciative of the fact that um, we're given that opportunity, that the, the agency, that the Keck Foundation in this case, knows and understands the kind of challenges that um, and the kind of risks that one has to take sometimes in order to make breakthrough discoveries. And so just as scientists, we're incredibly lucky that we get to have that chance. That doesn't come along uh, terribly often. And, you know, we think that something really good is going to come out of this. We believe that something really good is going to come out of this, and it's going to push science in, in one way or another forward. And so, yeah, we really do thank the Keck Foundation, and we thank MSU as well for really being supportive um, of us and of the application and of the process to, to put forward the best application we could and to really be uh, highly competitive with with many, many other universities and very strong groups applying for, for this as well.
1: Yeah, uh, I would like to say, just like a lot, uh, it's really wonderful that there are these foundations like the Keck Foundation that recognizes that traditional funding sources, let's say all the federal agencies, first of all, have limited funds. And also, you know, they require a much higher level of uh, proof before they will fund uh, a particular endeavor. And in this case, we're really proposing something that has never been proposed uh, as far as we know. Uh, it has never been shown and and so it poses a high risk uh, but high reward type of uh, of uh, activity and it's wonderful that there are uh, institutions like the Keck Foundation that are saying you know if uh, some scientists convince us that there is uh, you know a possibility to achieve uh, results that have never been uh, observed before that could have a tremendous impact in science we would like to facilitate that. And, and that's really fantastic. And, and as a lot said, to be on the receiving end is just uh, incredible. It's, uh, it's uh, just a wonderful opportunity and one that we want to do the most uh, for.
0: Well, gentlemen, congratulations again on earning this prestigious award from the Keck Foundation and all the best moving forward.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
0: That was Marcus Dantas, an MSU Foundation professor and a university distinguished professor of chemistry in the College of Natural Science, and Alad Harrell, an associate professor in the Department of Chemistry. And I'm Russ White. This is MSU Today.